One of the harder things that I share back in my office on a daily basis is what causes daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, what causes a problem or an issue to stay in someone's head or heart that long? How can someone who knows God have an issue or a problem that has now been in their head or in their heart for a year or in their heart for 10 years or 20 years? How can that happen? What mechanically is actually going on? A few months ago, God gave me this revelation. And I draw a circle, small one, and explain that it's a small tub or pool of water. And I ask him, if I drop a rock into the middle of that, yes, it's going to create a splash. It's going to be an immediate effect. We watch it all the time. What happens when that object is dropped into the water? It causes a ripple. If that object is large enough and creates enough of a disturbance, what happens when that ripple gets to the edge of that tub? It would splash over the side if it could, but if it can't, it's going to do something else. It's going to turn and come right back. When it hits in the middle, it's going to turn and go right back. You can really see sound waves do this inside of a chamber. They're going to just do this. I can label in this picture what the object's dropped in is. That is a problem, a challenge, an issue, a broken heart, anything disruptive that gets dropped into this pool, which is us. That pool is my mind, it's my emotion, it's my heart. It's what I think and feel. And it gets dropped in there and... It doesn't last just a day. It doesn't last a couple of days. I realize that after a year, I still have that on my mind. I haven't let it go. So I know what's happening is this, it landed in the middle, it went to the edge, it's come back to the middle, it's gone to the edge, it's come back to the middle, and it stays in there. Here's the question. Can you label the circle? Yeah, it's a tub, we define that. But if symbolically, something dropped in the middle is a problem, The water is me, my mind, and my heart. What is the circle? What makes the problem turn around and come back? There's really two things. It's always consistent. The enemy put it there, but I need it labeled. It's self-image. It's what you think about yourself. Because if you think that you're worthless, if you think you're rejected, if you think you're abandoned, if you think yourself to be a failure, whatever you believe about yourself is going to determine, it's going to hit that thought, that belief about yourself and turn around and come back. Because if it wasn't there, if you, you didn't have in your mind that I'm a failure, that I'm a, I'm a, I'm a loss, I'm a, I'm a waste of time, I'm a, I'm a waste of effort, whatever it is that you've branded yourself or that you carry, that the enemy actually put there, if you were to remove that thought, what would happen to that problem? You'd drop it, it would fade into nowhere, and you wouldn't carry it anymore. It's hitting against self-image. But it has a partner. That ring is not only self-image, it's also what you believe that God feels about you. Because if you make God angry, if you make God harsh, if you make God judgmental, if you make him disappointed in you, then what's going to happen to that problem is you're going to hit against God's ability to heal and forgive and to love and to, and to take it away. And it's going to turn around and come back because we make God this big. He's just the size of the tub. What would happen if we actually believed about God what he says about himself and his ability and his, and his love for us and his capacity? What would actually happen? The ring would go away. The problem would drop. I can't stop the problem from hitting us. 
I can't stop the challenges from being dropped into the pool. But I guarantee what we can change is what we believe about ourselves and what we think that God feels about us. Those can be changed. And all of a sudden, the issues that are bouncing around, there's no edge anymore. I don't measure that challenge against my own inability. I imagine it against the enormity of God and recognize that it's just a problem dropped into this pool that's infinite because of the nature of God. We're busy, always trying to remove that ring. I can't stop the problems from coming. I can't stop the challenges. But I guarantee you, we can fully and 100% believe something different about ourselves and our relationship about God. I wonder how many things in my life have bounced off the wall out there because I've thought about myself, I'm poor. How many problems have stayed in my head because of that label I put on myself, I'm poor. We speak those things over ourselves, and whether we believe it or not, that's truly the reflection of what we think. When we came across this lyric, God, I look to you, I won't be overwhelmed. How can I make that statement? I look to you. If I look at you, I see the enormity of you. I see the capability of you. And what problem could I bring before him that's not immediately made smaller just in his presence? Give me vision to see things like you do. All that ring says, this is the way I see it. God, I look to you. You're where my help comes from. Give me wisdom. You know what to do. This is a a powerful picture, powerful in the reality, because most of us live very limited lives because of this circle, because of this ring. I spoke to you last week, and I spoke to you again on Sunday morning, that God is in the constant business, on purpose, of shattering our ideas about him. Went through all the, you know, what were they expecting? They were expecting a king on a horse. What did they get? A baby in a manger. Shattered their idea of God. As he grew up, they were still expecting him to be king. What happened? He died. They thought it was over. What happened three days later? He was alive. So now they're thinking, now is the time. He, now he's shown this supernatural reality. Now he'll become king. What happens next? He disappears. He could have never imagined that the plan was he's going to come back in this invisible nature called the Holy Spirit. Constantly shattering what they thought they had figured out about him. And we live the same reality today. God has a desire over and over to shatter our idea of him so that he gets bigger. What we know about him, believe about him, understand about him is that we'll never touch the boundaries of understanding him. Matthew chapter 13, back to the parables. I'm going to back up to 31 because I just want to touch on it and then I'm going to go into the next one and that's probably where we're going to stop because the last three really belong together. Verse 31 is the one we ended with last time, but I'll go back over it. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it was grown, it is the greatest among herbs. And it became a tree, so that the birds of the air came and lodged in the branches thereof. So again... Remember the, the symbolism, the, what he's trying to tell us here? We have to know he's speaking about the kingdom. We're talking about his kingdom. And what does it look like? Takes this mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds. When it's planted, when it's taken care of, it grows up into a bush. It grows up to become an herb. We have to know that that's where our story is supposed to end. Until he comes back, until he comes at the rapture, until he comes to get us, 
This is describing our story. The kingdom of heaven is designed to be a herb, a healing balm across the nations. It's designed to bring love and unity and goodness and kindness and salvation and restoration and deliverance to the nations of people. I love the explanation of Patch Adams as he's defending himself in this little clinic that he started. And he said, who are the doctors? And he says, we all are. Who are the patients? Well, we all are. Because in reality, for every one of us sitting here in this body tonight in this church, some of the time we're doctors and we're helping others. But sometimes I'm the patient and somebody's helping me. So we're always in this reality that I am both. Sometimes far more patient, sometimes far more the doctor. We're all helpers at times and we're all in need at times. And we're designed to be people, according to this scripture, that by our hands and by our hearts, by our feet, by our ears, by the proclamation of a faith that comes from my mouth, then the reality of God becomes the healing bomb across the nations. That's why we don't see Jesus taking on political issues. We don't see him causing uprisings. He did it somewhat by his nature because of who he was. He was a God of transformation. He was teaching them things that they'd never even comprehended before. But you watch him move and you hear the stories and you watch the lives being touched. He was bringing goodness to person after person after person. Transforming a life from blind to sight, lame to walk, lost to saved, sinful to forgiven. Constantly bringing that to the people that were around him. When it speaks of it becoming a tree, that's an unnatural act. You would never go out here and plant a mustard seed saying, I'm looking forward to the day when it becomes this great tree and birds come and land in it. It is an unnatural act, and what God is speaking of there is what happened historically, but also what happens now when the church designed Israel first, the church grafted in, what happens when we take on agendas, when we start moving as a nation moves as a political force. Why is the church despised? Why is it disliked? Why is it hated? It's because we, on issue after issue, we choose up sides and we take up positions and we speak with this voice of the church. Who now is going to be the healing bomb? Who's going to bring the goodness? Who's going to bring the kindness? If the church gives it up to become another tree so that the birds can come and land in it. Now, these are the same birds that were picking up seeds earlier. These are not good birds. These are birds that have come and take lodging in this tree. And he says, that's what's going to happen in my kingdom. Did it happen? Absolutely. Is it happening today? Absolutely. And we wonder, what's happening to the goodness in our world? What's happening in the kindness to our world? Where did God design it to come from? Remember the story of the fig tree? He didn't go out on the highway looking for fruit. He didn't go out into the field looking for fruit. He went into the vineyard that he had planted, expecting that if I'm going to plant a vineyard with trees that are supposed to produce, I should be able to go there and find fruit. He's not looking out in the world for fruit. He's not looking in the chamber of commerce for fruit. He's looking within his church because we're the one place by the heart of God. Now, there's other people who do kind things. There's other people who do good things. There's no other place that can do supernatural things. They can demonstrate supernatural kindness, supernatural goodness, supernatural healing, supernatural love. Nobody can do that. 
outside of the church, outside of that which he has taken and given himself to. I don't mean to make it narrow, because I'm not talking denominations. I'm talking that God planted a vineyard. And he said, I want to be able to go here anytime and find the fruit, because I have given it everything it needs to bear fruit. I guess it's no surprise that when the church took on the agenda and became a political force, the extreme right, as we're typically known, the conservative right that we're typically known, we now have a position in this continuum of politics and label this as who we are, where did the goodness go? Where did the kindness go? Where did the forgiveness and healing go? And we wonder thousands of questions why our world's in the shape that it's in. Let's go to the next parable. Verse 33, another parable spake he unto them. The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. And we ask ourselves, what in the world did Jesus mean? Now again, we have talked and spoken and know that he's telling us deep things. These are not children's stories. This isn't vacation Bible school material. He's introducing things he's never spoken of before, things that are so deep and so difficult, he's trying to put them in simple terms so that they would understand. And they understood this. We may get confused. Up until I was probably 40 years old or 45 years old a few years ago, I believed what is typically taught about this passage, that the leaven is something good that is sown in, and so the whole thing is leavened. What does leaven do? It puffs up. It's what yeast does in bread. It makes it rise. I heard it taught that way, that when this leaven is sowed in, it's kind of like what happens when faith comes in and it, and it just begins to rise and it begins to multiply and it begins to create this beautiful bread. I want to tell you that is not even close what this parable says. I would encourage you at any point through the scripture to find the word leaven and make it something good in context. It is never good. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. What's Jesus warning them about? About the deceit, about the sin, about the stretching of the truth. Why did he require that the leaven be removed in that process of baking the unleavened bread? That, was, that wasn't a, a quick process. The kids would go, and as Dale taught us, and I've read about it several different times, in, in the preparation for that day of unleavened bread, that they would go through and they would clean the crumbs. I mean, the house had to be cleaned spotless so that there wouldn't be a crumb of bread that had actually been baked with leaven in it in the house. And they would take this and with a little broom and they would sweep it up and they would cast any of that into the fire and it would be burned up before they would celebrate the unleavened bread, the sinless bread. So it was huge in the representation of what it meant. So how in the world, in this one parable, would a master teacher suddenly make leaven something good? Leaven is not something good in this parable. It's a lie. It's deceit. It's a distortion. If, if you want to just boil it down and just put sin in there, it is sin. It says the kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, untruth, deceit, which a woman took. Now, how is the church always described? There's a characteristic of that bride of Christ. Always a virgin, never a woman. The church is characterized as a virgin, pure before the Lord, waiting on the day 
of, of that relationship with Jesus Christ. The woman here pictures a false church, a pseudo-church. Looks like a church, acts like a church, functions like a church, but it's a false one because it's willing to have this untruth sewn into it. So he's talking about here a church that, that no longer understands what the truth is, no longer understands and can delineate a, a lie from the deceit or a lie from the truth. No, it doesn't know the difference. It's a sad commentary, but I want to tell you that there are, the majority of churches can't tell the difference. And you may not like this answer, but any church that doesn't have the future reality of it and the understanding that it is only by God's Spirit, by the work of the Holy Spirit, that we can actually function. Any church that doesn't preach that and teach that has bought into a lie. And the churches are full. See if you can read the New Testament and remove the Holy Spirit. Just see if you can do it. It's on every page. Starting with Jesus saying, I'm going away and I'm going to spend the Spirit of truth in my place. So the Spirit of truth comes at Pentecost. Everything from that point forward, even Jesus had to receive the Holy Spirit, so that knowing that he was never more than man, never less than God. He never functioned at all in any way except in his humanity. He had to have the Spirit of God to be able to function. He says it without the Father, I can do nothing. I have no way to function except what the Father gives me. Any church that will teach and preach that something limiting less than the Holy Spirit fully functioning within our lives has bought into something that is not true within this scripture. I did it for years. I taught it for years that way. But when I came to the truth, I can't go back. I can't go back to something less. It's not condemnation on the churches. But you realize how easily, easy it is for something to slip in. Who benefits by the teaching that the Holy Spirit has nothing to do with the church today? There's only one person who benefits from that deceit. Satan. But it's taught that way over and over and over. Listen to a sermon sometimes. Turn on TV and listen to it. How freely the word God comes off their tongue, how freely the word Jesus comes off their tongue, and you never hear Holy Spirit unless it's just in the context of a teaching. He's become irrelevant in the Christian story. Kingdom of heaven is like leaven, the seat sown that a woman took, a false church. And where did she hide it? In three measures of meal, three measures of wheat. What does three picture? The Trinity. In this unusual. Where was the lie sown? In the teaching of the Trinity. So what does the lie look like? If I'm going to sow it into the Trinity, what does the lie sound like? Sound like the truth. Sounds right. If the lie hadn't been put in the Trinity, what would we believe about the Holy Spirit? You can be Christians without the Holy Spirit. That's the lie. If you take the Holy Spirit out, what does the church lose? Everything. Power. It loses everything. And we function like any other organization put together to do good things. Not supernatural things, just good things. Supernatural thought of in, within church is long gone. Nobody comes to church expecting to see anything supernatural. We've ad adopted, adjusted, and created our own truth. Convenient. But the lie was sown into the teachings of the Trinity. It says it right here. It's not really very confusing. Until what happened? The whole thing was leavened. The whole thing believed the lie. The whole thing saturated the lie. You know what would happen if I preached this in most Baptist churches? It would be over. And that's the simple truth. I can't turn that into something beautiful. That's a warning. 
Wouldn't it be amazing if it read, the kingdom of heaven is like truth, which a virgin took, the church took, and sowed that truth into three measures of meal, and the whole world was blessed. That would be good news. That would be great news. David, would you uh, come read that little piece that you read to me out a while ago about, about this, just that little paragraph? David was talking to me about how God shatters the ideas, and he, how he had just had one of those moments. The Christian must never forget that salvation is God's idea, and not man's. It is the great thought of God, not an experience. Experience is simply the door through which salvation comes to the conscious level of our life so that we're aware of what's taken place on a much deeper level. Never preach the experience. Preach the great thought of God behind the experience. When we preach, we're not simply proclaiming how people can be saved from hell and be made moral and pure. We're conveying the good news about God. Did you hear anything different in that? What happens when churches teach salvation as an experience? You know what Vacation Bible School did to it? Admit you're a sinner. Believe Jesus saved you. Confess with your mouth. Turned it into a process. Who did we leave out of the story? The God behind the salvation. The great mystery itself got left out. And we wonder why it's not good news. Because we teach the experience is the ultimate what we ought to be teaching is that that whole experience, the whole opportunity is given out of the heart of God, who while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the thought and the heart of God behind it. That's life-changing. These are powerful parables with deep warnings. What happens when God gives a warning and we ignore it? What would he call us? It says in the Bible over and over, you're foolish. If I give you a warning and you see it, this whole thing leaves me in a strange place. First of all, it leaves me so grateful that you let me preach and teach. I've been here six years and three months. I've never had somebody walk into my office and say, you shouldn't teach what you're teaching or preach what you're preaching. Now, I know people disagree with it, but by the grace extended to me, nobody's ever come into my office trying to create pressure so that I will amend in any form or fashion what I teach. That's pretty remarkable based on what I teach. The other side, though, is that it can't help but make you sad. I just hear people searching church after church after church, looking for a place where there's an expectation that God's really going to show up, that God's really going to make a difference. He's really going to touch somebody. He's really going to heal somebody. He's really going to transform somebody. That their life is truly fixing to be different. That expectation isn't even real for most people. So I'm extremely grateful and brokenhearted at the same time. If I leave the Holy Spirit out of the story, there is no salvation. Who convinced you? Who taught you about sin? Who brought the reality that there was weight to it, the wage of sin is death? That's not knowledge. That's when the Holy Spirit teaches you that and a scream forms in you so loud that, you, that you're shouting for someone to come rescue you. That's when he can introduce you to, the, to Jesus. No one's ever been saved without the work of the Holy Spirit, ever. It's impossible. Not because I said it, Scripture says it. That's what he does. It's what I can't do. So why in the world, as, as Paul says, would we believe that by the Spirit we began, that strangely we would be asked to continue on this journey without him? Strange thought. But we think it, and we believe the lie. I did for a long time. And I'm just so glad that God didn't leave me there. 
Most gracious Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you that you didn't leave us. When you found some place, you found hearts that were willing to be open again, to listen again, to grow again, to pay attention again, and to see our ideas of you shattered, only to realize that what you were about to show us was more glorious, more fantastic, more supernatural, more loving, more kind than we could have ever imagined. That with ever shattering of our ideas, you grow in enormity and infinitely. I just thank you, Lord, that we will never come to the end of seeking you or discovering you and figuring you out. I thank you, God, that you are a God so enormous that when something drops into the pool of my life, though it may be very disturbing in the moment, that it may take my breath away in the moment that it's so painful, that I realize because of you, what you've spoken over me and what you've revealed about yourself, that this is a light and momentary affliction and that it fades into the reality, as Paul says, I will now even glory in my infirmity. I'll glory. It not only changed from a problem, a challenge for him, it was transformed into a shout of glory. And I pray, Lord, that we too, as a people, would recognize that truth, accept it, appropriate it for ourselves and to others, and let you keep teaching us. In Jesus' name, amen.